Have you ever woke up somewhere and thought, how in the world did I get here? Just woke up, how in the world did I get here? Um, it used to happen to me quite a bit. Now, before you think your pastor had like a drinking or drug problem, um, I didn't have one of those. I had a sleepwalking problem. And as a kid, I was just a sleepwalker. Any sleepwalkers in the room? There'd be nights that I would wake up on the couch, in the living room, in the hallway. Um, my brother tells a story. I kind of remember the next day as much as not that because I was asleep. That uh, one night he was um, hanging out with some buddies watching TV and I'd already gone to bed. And um, and I just got up out of bed, sleepwalking, walked into our di- our our living room, which is next to our little den entertainment room where they were watching TV, and I just stood there with my hands on my hips and just screamed at him, completely asleep. And he said he freaked out, his friends freaked out because I caught him off guard, and they looked at me, they were like, what, what are you doing? And Jason's like, oh, it's just Jared sleepwalking. Go back to bed, and I just turned around and went back to bed. Have you ever been there before? Do we have any sleepwalkers in the room? George, hi, Elaine's holding George's hand up. It happens. Look, it happens life. You wake up and you're like, how did I get here? How did I get to this point? Now, as a pastor and as a youth pastor, man, I have heard this so many times in life. But it's not just about sleepwalking. Sometimes, sometimes it's you wake up one day and you look down and you're like, where did this 40 pounds come from? I don't remember gaining all of this weight. You look in the mirror, and it's just like you just wake up, and you're like, oh, the speaking of mirrors, like, oh, man, how did that happen? I don't remember. I don't remember this. Or, or maybe it's financial. You know, you're just going through life, and you're not balancing the checkbook, and you're not looking at the credit card statements, and you get at one point, and it finally... You finally get enough bravery to tear open that Discover card and you discover all of these digits. Just dot, dot, dot. Like, How did this happen? I don't remember using this. This much. You wake up. You're just like, how did I get here? Sometimes it happens relationally, right? We're so busy. We're going through life and we're just doing all the stuff as husbands and wives and moms and dads and we're racing everywhere And at some point, one of us just wakes up and we realize how disconnected we are from the person that we love so much. Like, how did I get to this place? I don't, I can't think of any blow up, knock down, drag out fights, but, but something's not right. How did I get here? Jesus tells a story um, in Luke chapter 15. He calls it the prodigal son. It's a parable. A parable is a story that has a point. And uh, so he's telling this story about a dad um, that has two sons. And his youngest son is just tired of doing life his dad's way and his dad's rules. And so he just says, Dad, I want my inheritance. And um, basically he looks at his dad and he says, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. I want you to give me what you owe me, what I deserve because I'm your son. Give it to me. I wish you were dead. And the, and the father does. And so he gives his son his inheritance, and, and, and Jesus tells the story to where the son goes off into a faraway land, and he just starts living life, I mean, in all the wrong places. You know, he's drinking, he's gambling, he's partying, he's pulling all these friends together. And the scripture says it's wild living. Some of us know what wild living looks like. I don't, but some of us know what wild living looks right like. And that's what this prodigal son is doing. He is wild living. 
And the, and the story that Jesus tells says that at, at some point, when all of his friends and when him, when they've spent all of his money, just at the wrong time, a famine hits the land. And isn't that about how it happens, right? I mean, when you are at your lowest point, that's when it gets really bad. And so he's at his lowest point, and it gets really bad. A famine hits the land, and, and, he, and he doesn't know what to do. So he starts looking for work, and he finds probably the worst job possible for a Jewish man, and that's tending the pigs. Because the Jews, pigs were unclean animals. They're disgusting. They don't touch them. They don't have anything to do with them. They don't eat them. It's off limits. It's off. They just have nothing. That's the only work he can find. And so Jesus says in this story that this young man is out in the middle of the slop, right? And he's knee deep in mud. I'm doing, taking a little bit of liberties here with Jesus' story. But he says that as he's feeding these pods to these pigs, he looks at it and he says, man, I kind of want to eat that. The scripture says that he, that he comes to himself. That he has one of those moments where he wakes up and he says, how in the world did I get to this place? Did I get to this point? My dad's servants have life better than me. He came to himself. How did I get here? How did I find myself in this pig pen? How did I find myself in this situation? And that's what we're talking about today. We're following the story of Abram and Sarah and God's call in their life to have a great nation, to build a great nation from them, to have descendants that are more numerous than the stars in the sky. That was the promise that we looked at last week in our message, this amazing promise that God gives Abram. And he says, because of your faithfulness, because of all this good stuff that you're doing, because you're following me faithfully, man, I'm making a covenant with you that you're going to be great and you're going to have more descendants than you can count stars in the sky. And it's going to be amazing. But Abram and Sarah take life and take matter into their own hands, like often we do, and they mess it up. So if you grab your notes out of your bulletin, we're going to follow and pick up right there. We're going to see where Abram and Sarah just kind of get tired of doing it God's way and waiting on God's timing, and they take life into their own hands again. And so this is happening in Genesis chapter 16, verse 1 through 16. This is what the scripture says. It says, now Sarah... Abram's wife, or Sarah, I'm going to say Sarah because Sarah always just throws me off as I go along, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with the maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And Abram agreed to what Sarah said. Now, we're, we're creating a problem here. I don't, this is not going to end well. But before we're too hard on Sarah, before we're too hard on Abram, this was kind of an ancient Middle Eastern custom. That if, uh, that if, uh, uh, you know, if a couple couldn't have kids, then they would take one of their servants, they would take one of their people from their home, and that they would have a descendant through them, and then they would adopt this child into their family to carry on their lineage. And so this is a common thing that would happen in ancient Middle East. But it's probably not what God had in mind when he told Abram and Sarah that, that they're going to have descendants and they're going to be as great as all the stars in the sky. And this is what happens. So, verse 3. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. 
When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I want you to underline that because that's an interesting thing. Whose idea was this to begin with? It was Sarah's. And who is she blaming? Abram, right? Well, okay. I put my servant in your arms, and now she knows she's pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Verse 6. Look how Abram responds. Underline this next sentence. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Basically, Sarah's looking at Abram saying, Abram, this is your fault. We're going to have to do something about this. And Abram's looking at Sarah and saying, no, 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 sister. No, no, no. You came up with this plan, wifey. This is your fault. You do whatever you want to do with this. She's your servant. You came up with this plan. My hands are clean here. Well, we know that's not true. It says, then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now with child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. Hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all of his brothers. So she gave him this name to the Lord who spoke to her. I want you to underline this next sentence. We're going to come back to it. It's so good. It says, you are the God who sees me. Hagar, running from Abram, running from Sarah being mistreated out in the wilderness all alone and God pursues her and she says, you're the God who sees me. I've now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Ber Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Agar bore Abram a son and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. So if we get in trouble when we do our life our own way, and if we really get in trouble when we try to take God's work in our own hands and do God's work God's way, then what are some principles that we can learn from this story about doing God's work God's way? Are you following me? If we do life our own way and we get in trouble, or if we do God's work our way and we really mess things up, then what can we learn about doing God's work God's way? And here's, here's a few thoughts. And the first thing is this. Remember that God is as concerned about the process as he is the product. God is as concerned about the process as he is the product. See, Abram's big mistake here, Sarah's big mistake here, was thinking that this was all about a kid. This is all about a kid. This is all about descendants. This is all about getting to that place. And, and, and if that's true, then it doesn't really matter how we get there. If it's all about the kid, then it doesn't matter how we get that kid as long as we get the kid. But the bigger picture is, is that it wasn't just about the kid. It was about much more than that. It was about God developing Abram and Sarah into being the people that he was calling them to be so that they could bear being the father of a great generation. Does that make sense? God was concerned about building Abram's character. 
God was concerned about building Abram's trust. God was concerned about building Abram's faith and his belief and his confidence in him. God was concerned about shaping him into being the man that God wanted him to be. God was concerned about shaping Sarah into her being the woman that he wanted her to be. The process is really more important than just the end process is just is, is, is as important or more important. Have you ever heard this saying? People say it all the time, the end justifies the means. This is what we hear in the world all the time, right? That it doesn't matter how you get there as long as you get there. Here's the deal, is that's not true in the kingdom of God. The end doesn't justify the means. You can't just do whatever you have to do to get to the end. It matters how you get there. The process matters. When I was a youth pastor in Missouri, I had the privilege of speaking at a camp in West Virginia. And uh, this was like in or like 2003, 2004. And at this camp in West Virginia, they did something called Bible quiz. And Bible quiz is at the end of the camp, the kids would study all week long in their youth groups. And at the end of the week, they would have this massive Bible quiz. They would line up all these chairs, one chair for every church. And on these chairs would be these little pressure pads. And you would sit on the pressure pad and then whenever they asked the question, the first kid to pop up, the light would go off on the board behind them, and they would get to answer the quiz. And so it was about speed, you know, who could pop up first, and it was about knowing the answers to the Bible quiz that they were going to give. Does that make sense? So they were Bible quiz, and they had a trophy. They had a sweet trophy that they gave to the youth group that would win, and they would take it home, and they would be Bible quiz champions for the year, and they would have to give the trophy back at camp, and then another youth group could win it. And it was a pretty sweet trophy, and it had been traveling around, right? And so this is what all these kids were going after. They were Bible quizzing. And being the speaker, I didn't have a whole lot of responsibilities during the week. You know, I would just speak at night, I would sleep in in the morning, and I would hang out with teenagers during the day. How beautiful is that, Right? And, uh, and so I would just hang out, watch them play games, listen to them. And one day, as I was walking around the camp, they were doing a little youth group time. And uh, one of the things they would do is they would prepare for the quiz. And so the youth pastor was supposed to, you know, help them go through the stories that they thought would be on there to learn, you know, all the different things that were happening in the Bible and these stories that they were going to be quizzed on. And I walked up to one youth group. And these kids were intently huddled around their youth pastor, and their youth pastor actually had the answers to the quiz. And he was saying, question number one is Moses. It doesn't matter what the question is. Question number one is Moses. Number two is Abraham. Number three is Jesus. Number four is Luke chapter 10. And he was just going through telling these kids all the answers. And after he got done, I walked up to him and I said, dude, what are you doing? He said, I'm studying with my youth group. I said, that's not studying. That's cheating. What are you doing? He's like, man, I'm just telling them the answers. I said, exactly. Isn't that what we call cheating? I mean, if a kid at school took home the answers to a quiz and just remember, that's called cheating. He's like, well, man, we want to win this year. This is serious business, getting that Bible quiz. And I was just like, dude, I am sure there are a lot of verses that you could be memorizing that talk about don't cheat, don't lie, don't steal. You're doing all of those things to win a Bible trophy. And I just kept thinking that this guy had bought into this belief that the end justifies the means. He's like, "Ah, well, you know, we really want to win. So I'm giving him the answers. So that's cheating, dude. 
It doesn't really matter, right? The end justifies the means. It doesn't. This is what, this is what James, the brother of Jesus, says in James 1, 3, and 4. He says, For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. You see, sometimes it's the struggle. Sometimes it's the process. It's in that struggle. It's in that process. It's in that journey that God uses it to make us whole and to make us complete and to build up who we are, our our character, our endurance, to form us into who he is creating us to be. Does this make sense? Does this make sense to you, the process? It's as important as the product. You know, I've been known, um, this will come as a shock to some of you, but I hadn't been known to dabble in the gym a time, time or two. You can't tell right now, but it is true. I've been known to lift weights. And one of the things that I know about lifting weights, one of the things that I know about working out, is that if you really want to build your muscles, you got to give them some resistance, right? You can't go in with like little five-pound weights and just lift them up, you know, and, and expect something to happen. But it's when you push your muscles to an extreme, and, and that, that muscle gets torn down and gets built up. It's that process, that resistance that makes us strong. Or our life, our spiritual life, our health, our hearts, they're muscles too. And sometimes it's that process that we go through that God uses to create us to who we're going to be, to build that character. And some of you are going through a tough process right now. You're going through a struggle. And what I want to tell you is don't rush it. Trust the Father. Trust his time. Trust that he will bring you out in due time, that he will bring the healing, he'll bring the health, he'll bring the restoration when he's ready. Remember that God is concerned about the process as he is the product. See, the problem is, is that when we're frustrated with the process, we have a tendency to take a shortcut. I'm the king of the long shortcut. Anybody else want to admit that? What I mean by that is this. When I'm on a highway, interstate or US 60, and I'm stuck in rush hour, and I'm behind that semi-truck, and I'm getting really frustrated with how slow my lane is. And I look to the left, and I see that lane just going by at a steadier pace than what I'm. I get to, at some point, I just get frustrated about being there, and I just whip over into that left lane, and I take off. But here's the deal. It never fails. When I whip over into that left lane, about every other person had the same exact idea. And that lane starts going a whole, whole lot slower than the lane I was in. And does that happen to anybody else than me? And I'm watching that semi-truck that I was behind slowly creep by me. And now they're a quarter mile down the road and I'm stuck going slower. And so I move over back into that lane. And everybody else does the exact same thing. And I'm stuck 10 10 cars back from where I was to begin with as this lane goes past. And then I think, you know what, I'll just get off the highway. And so I exit the highway and it seems like every other person decided to exit the highway and I'm stuck at a light and every single car on the highway is just going past me. And I'm thinking, how in the world did this happen? It's the long shortcut. Anybody else happen? I hate it. I hate it. And that's what happens when we take our life in our own hands and we get tired of, of, of just waiting and, and being patient. Man, sometimes life's shortcuts can be expensive toll roads. And they cost us so much. And that's where we find Abraham, Abram, and Sarah. Abram and Sarah, they're waiting. And they're frustrated with waiting. They're like, God, how long do we have to wait? 
Can we just speed up this process a little bit? Are you kidding me? And so they take the shortcut. And they take matters into their own hands. And they create a problem for their family, for Hagar's family, for poor Ishmael. I mean, all of that was not God's design. It was their expensive shortcut. Solomon, the writer of Proverbs, says this in Proverbs 19.2. He says, zeal without knowledge is not good. A person who moves too quickly can go the wrong way. Have you ever been running somewhere and you get so running so fast that you're, you get off path in your car and in life? Proverbs 21.5 says, Good planning and hard work leads to prosperity, but hasty shortcuts lead to poverty. And when we get out of hand and we get going through our shortcuts and we make hasty decisions, that's when it hits us the hardest. See, it's a good thing to wait patiently for God. One of the great temptations in life is to find a shortcut of our own making to get where we think we need to be. Any of you ever heard the name George O'Leary? George O'Leary was the head coach at Georgia Tech. I'm not sure where he's coaching at right now, but in 2001, he got hired for his dream job to be the head coach of Notre Dame. And he was the head coach of Notre Dame for all of seven days. George O'Leary had the resume. I mean, he had been a winner at Georgia Tech. He had gone to Pro Bowl, uh, not Pro Bowls, but 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 bowl games. He had won. He had graduated some outstanding young men. I mean, he had a stellar program. And he was hired to one of the most prestigious universities and football programs in the country, right? And he has to, he has to resign seven days later. Why? Because when he was a young man, he was trying to get his first job out of college, he took his resume and he just kind of fudged it a little bit. And he said that he actually had a master's degree from teaching from New York University, I believe is what it was, in 1972. But the truth is he didn't have his master's degree. He had only taken some master level courses. He never finished his degree. He also said on his resume 20 or so years earlier that he was a three-year letterman at his university, at New York University. But the truth is, is that he actually didn't letter at all. He didn't even get to play in a game because before each season he got injured and he spent the whole year on the injured list. And so here's a guy 20 years before lied on his resume and now he has his dream job and it catches up to him and he has to resign. Listen to what he says. It's a crazy article in Sports Illustrated in 2001. He says, many years ago, as a young married father, I sought to pursue my dream as a football coach. In seeking employment, I prepared a resume that contained inaccuracies regarding my completion of coursework for a master's degree and also my level of participation in football at my alma mater. These misstatements were never stricken from my resume or a biological sketch in years later. For more than 30 years, I've been blessed to be a football coach. That's all I ever wanted to do. The victories, the postseason bowls, the honors and successes of my players on and off the field speak for themselves. But one constant throughout my career has been my coaching philosophy of demanding personal accountability for one's actions. Today, I regret to report that last night I tendered my resignation as head football coach at the University of Notre Dame. My resignation has been accepted. This action has been taken by me for the following reasons. He's a guy that had the resume who had to resign because of a shortcut that caught up with him later in life. Shortcuts, they often lead to become our most expensive toll roads. Here's a third thought. 
Don't multiply your mess by avoiding it. Go back and look at the story, those verses I asked you to to underline. When, When it hits the fan and life gets out of control and everybody starts mistreating each other, what does Sarah say? Sarah looks at Abram. I, I told you to underline. She says, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. She doesn't want to accept responsibility for the fact that it was her idea. This was her plan. And then Abram, he comes back and he says, hey, 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 hey. Look here, your servant's in your hands. Do whatever you think is best. He's like, no, this wasn't my idea. You, this was your idea, so you fix it. You, you do something about this. Here's two people who are equally involved in creating this mess in their life, and neither one of them wants to accept responsibility for it. And that's what happens to us. When we get into the middle of the mess, we have a tendency sometimes to avoid it. And when we avoid it, we multiply it. We make it worse. Look, they both messed up, but they're avoiding their mistakes. Proverbs 28.13 is a beautiful promise. It says, people who cover over their sins will not prosper. But, read this next part with me. But if they confess and forsake them, they will receive mercy. First John says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and purify you from all unrighteousness. If you confess and turn from it and admit it, Fess up. When you fess up, man, God can forgive and can redeem and can make it right. That's hard to do sometimes. Stephen, this guy in New Hampshire, was at a baseball game. And uh, he had too much to drink and he passes out at the game. They have a really hard time reviving him. So they call an ambulance. And uh, the ambulance has a hard time. You know, the paramedics have a hard time reviving him. So they load him up into, uh, into, the, into the ambulance and they start heading to the hospital. Well, somewhere on the journey to the hospital, Stephen wakes up. And he wakes up, and he's upset, and he's belligerent. He's like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this. And so he starts ripping out IVs and taking off the oxygen mask and pushes the paramedic away, and he starts unbuckling himself and just bulldozes himself in the back of this ambulance. And luckily, they start to pull the ambulance over. When he gets off the gurney, throws up and open the back door and says, I am out of here, and he jumps out the back. The only problem was is that the ambulance was on the highway and he got hit by a car. Luckily, there was an ambulance nearby to take him to the hospital. (laughs) Isn't that what we do, though? We get in the middle of a mess and we start bulldozing our way through it. We start trying to fix everything. We get belligerent. We start kicking open doors and we find ourselves hit by a car. That's what happens when we avoid the problem. When we mess up, instead of giving it over to God, we have a tendency to bolt out the door. And I would say we'd be better off giving it over to Him. Some of the messes that we've been avoiding, we need to start walking through. Some of the messes that we've been multiplying, we need to start dealing with and finding the solutions and allowing God to be our solution. Here's one last thought for you. Don't despair. God's ability to redeem is as great as his willingness to forgive. You know, if I was God, it's a good thing I wasn't. I'd looked at Abram, I'd looked at Sarah and say, well, you two are knuckleheads. I keep trying to do good stuff for you. You know, I said you're going to be great. We're going to build this great nation through you. And then you go off to Egypt and you try to give off your wife to Pharaoh because they're afraid. And I fixed that for you, man. I fixed it for you. 
I forgave you. I pulled you right back into the plane. And here you are again, not trusting me and not trusting the way and the timing I've given. You are on your own. I take it back. I take them all back. We're not doing this. You know, if you can't be obedient to me, I'm not going to keep going down this journey with you. That's not what God says. And that's not what God does. Abram and Sarah, they mess up. And they mess up big time. And they create a mess, and it causes problem for them and for the children. It causes a problem for Hagar. It poor Ishmael, you know, he's in the middle of this mess, and now he's going to be a wild donkey of a guy, and nations are always going to be against him. I mean, this is a colossal mess. And here's God saying, I know you blew it, but I'm willing to forgive and to be faithful. See, not only does he forgive Abram and Sarah for their unfaithfulness and for taking life in their own hands and doing it their own way, but he also redeems Hagar. Hagar runs. She abandons her mistress. She runs out into the wilderness. She says, I'm not doing this. I'm not obeying. I'm off. I'm out of here. And what does God do? God pursues her. The, the commentaries say that this angel of the Lord was actually the presence of God pursuing Hagar into the wilderness. Pursuing her, saying, I don't want you out here alone. I don't want you out here struggling to make it. I want to take care of you. I will provide for you. And what does Hagar say? Hagar says, you are the God who sees me. In my worst place, in my worst timing, in the most often part of, awful part of my life, you are the God who sees me. You're the God who hears me. You're the God who can redeem me. I just want to say, some of you may have felt like that this last week or at a season in life, and I just want to remind you that God is so actively pursuing you. that He sees you and he hasn't forgotten you. There's a story this girl named Mandy. Mandy is in prison. Um, and uh, while she was in prison, she came to know the Lord. And uh, God redeemed her life, and she found Christ, and she, she decided there was a better way to do life. And so she wrote this poem, and I want to write it to you. These are Mandy's own words. She said, Today I woke up feeling more than alive. I have a new life and the will to survive. I've forgotten the hate that I once knew, and I've picked up a love that will carry me through. Once feeling weak, I now feel strong. I can feel remorse for the things I've done wrong. I've made a new promise, and I can make it through this. I'm getting new beliefs. The old ones, I won't miss. I'm already proud of the friends I will gain and the release of the jealousy and the greed and the pain. And when it's over and it's said and it's done, my battle will be worthy, settled, and won. And all that there's left is there's just one thing to say, that is, thank you, God, for the strength for today. How great is our God? It's, he's not great enough just to wipe our slate clean, but he's great enough to take what the enemy meant for evil and to bring it to good. That's good. I put this in your note. Well, Romans 8.28 says this is Paul writing. He says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. What a beautiful promise. It doesn't say all things are good. It doesn't say all things 
feel good. It doesn't say like, all things are awesome and amazing. That's not what it says. What it says is that, and we know that in all things, God works for good. So he takes that mess. He takes that struggle. He takes that tough place. He takes those joys, whatever it is. And if you love him and if you've given him your life, he makes it good. He makes it good. No matter how far you wander, God always sees. God always hears. And God always cares. There's this little, a cute little story about this little boy named Johnny. He was, uh, it's always a boy named Johnny, right? <laughs> this little boy named Johnny, he's shopping with his mom in a corner grocery store. And um, the owner of the grocery store in the corner of the street um, had, a, had a candy jar at the front. And uh, if a kid came in with their parents and he behaved himself and he was really good, he wasn't running all crazy and being disobedient, he would allow the kid to reach their hand in at the end of the day and take out some candy. And so Johnny was on his best behavior. I mean, he was right there by mom. He was listening. He was obeying because he knew if he did a good job, if he was a good little kid, that the store owner would, would reward him for it. So he was on his best behavior, and his mom was checking out, and the store clerk owner looked down at him and said, Son, hey, you've been good today. How about you reach in and get some candy? He took off the lid, and little Johnny took his little old hand, and he started to reach in. And then he pulled it back really fast and was really shy, and he buried his face in his mama's skirt. The store owner said, oh, oh, son, there's nothing to be afraid of. And So the store owner reached in with his hand. He grabbed a load of candy, and he reached it out, and he put it in Johnny's hands. He said, you're a good boy. Mom paid and walked out the door. And she looked down at Johnny and said, Johnny, what has gotten into you? That's not like you at all. You're not this shy little boy. I've never seen you bury your face in my skirt. What are you doing, son? Johnny looked up at his mom with a sheepish grin. He said, Mama, that man's hands are so much bigger than mine. So much bigger. So are God's. God's hands are so much bigger than ours. So why don't we stop taking life in our own hands? and start putting our life in His. Why don't we stop doing life our own way and start doing life God's way? Why don't we start doing God's work God's way? This morning, we're going to end by taking communion together. Sarah, going to come up with your worship team. And um, we're going to pass out the elements. And as we do that, um, just remember both elements, um, the cup, the bread and the juice are stacked together and take both of them when they go by. But maybe as we sing this song and as we hold these elements in our hands, maybe this is just one of those moments where we take a little self-assessment on where our life has been lately. We just get really honest with God and say, God, you know, has my life been in my own hands? Have I been doing life my own way? Maybe this morning is just a personal time for you to commit to the Lord to start doing his work his way. Whatever mess you've made of, whatever you got going on, that you'll just look to the Father and say, God, now I put it back in your hands. I need your grace. I need your mercy. I need your forgiveness. Like Sarah and Abram, he is so rich in giving his grace. Like Hagar, who's out in the wilderness, and he's the God who sees you, who knows whatever you're going through and can redeem offer mercy and grace and 